Today we talk about the turf at MetLife Stadium, how we can judge Robert Sala, and more on this mailbag edition of the Locked On Jets podcast. You are Locked On Jets, your daily New York Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome. This is the Locked On Jets podcast for Wednesday, February 9th, 2022. I'm your host, John B. from gangreennation.com. And today our episode is brought to you by Get Upside. Just download the free Get Upside app and use promo code TOUCHDOWN to get 25 cents per gallon or more cash back on your first tank. Thank you so much for making this show your first listen. And now perhaps first watch every day. The podcast is now on YouTube and it's free and available on all other podcast platforms. If you like what you hear or see, click the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode. And also, if you're watching on YouTube, give this episode a thumbs up. It'll help other Jets fans find this podcast. Today, we have our weekly mailbag. Thanks to everybody who sent in questions. Each Wednesday, we try to have a mailbag. Some weeks, because of scheduling, we have to move it to Tuesday or Thursday, sometimes Friday, sometimes Monday. But we always try to have it on Wednesday. So let's begin. Our first question comes from Tim. Hello, John. Listening to yesterday's podcast, you mentioned how unlucky the Jets have been with injuries. It turns out that the Giants have also been unlucky with injuries. I would think the common denominator is the turf at MetLife Stadium. The 49ers famously complained about the turf after a visit in 2020 where they suffered a lot of injuries. And the evidence seems clear that even if the turf is not particularly malicious among turf fields, the sheer number of injuries points in the direction of changing to grass. What would the process be for changing to grass? But both teams have to approve the change, have studies shown an increased prevalence of injuries for teams playing on turf, and how much more would a grass field cost? So lots of questions there from Tim. You know, Tim actually kind of like helped me put all the pieces together because you're right. The Jets have suffered a lot of injuries the last few years, and I've mentioned that. And just, it's kind of been amazing how unlucky they've been. And you're right, the Giants also have been pretty unlucky as far as injuries go. The 49ers complained, and I started thinking this through, and if you go all the way back to 2010 when the stadium opened and it was called New Meadowlands Stadium at the time, it was not MetLife Stadium yet, I even remember like the first month there were some questions, is this turf causing a lot of injuries? So maybe there's something to it. Now, there has never been a study that I'm aware of that focused specifically on MetLife Stadium, but I can tell you the NFL Players Association is very adamant that teams should be playing on grass. They claim that if you take the injury data over a five, six year period, it shows that there are 28% more non-contact injuries on turf field. So the players certainly would prefer to play on grass. Now, as far as I'm aware, I think the Jets and the Giants would both have to approve a change because they are co-owners of the stadium. So I think they would have to agree to that. I tried to look to see if there are any NFL rules. I found a few articles that suggested that there's no there's no rules that say a team has to play on turf or it has to play on grass or what there, that there's any specific NFL protocol for changing that. Last year, the Panthers changed their stadium from grass to turf. So I don't think there's anything that they'd have to do specifically with the league. In fact, I mentioned this game in the podcast last week when I was talking about the times the Jets beat Tom Brady. But famously, back in 2006... The Jets went to Foxborough on a very rainy Sunday in November, and they beat the Patriots on a very muddy field. The Patriots had issues 
with the, with the way the field was going. Guys were slipping all over the place. And that week, like during the season, Bill Belichick decided to tear up the grass field and put in turf. So I don't think there's anything that they'd have to do with the league. I think both teams would have to approve the process. How much would it cost? I mean, I don't know. They'd have to get an estimate. But I think as far as I know, the issue with the grass fields, it's not so much the installation cost. It's that it costs more money to maintain because you have to think about it. You put turf down, turf is turf. I mean, I'm sure you have to do some work on it, but not a lot. Meanwhile, a grass field, you have to maintain constantly. You have to make sure the grass is at the proper height. You, know, I think it's kind of obvious why grass would be more expensive to maintain than turf. Now, I'm not saying that's the reason the Jets have turf on their field. I don't know what the reason is. I think they ought to look into it, though. I think that's a very good point by Tim. And like I said, the Players Association says that when they've looked through the data, there's been more injuries and they, they think they look at non-contact injuries because you know if you're getting hit that's obviously going to cause an injury that could happen on turf or grass but they say that there's a 28 percent higher rate of non-contact injuries on turf field not specifically MetLife, but as far as i know the players would much prefer to play on grass which is kind of interesting because i remember back at the turn of the century when this new type of turf the field turf came into play now the old astro turf was terrible i mean it was like essentially putting carpet over concrete i mean it was a brutal surface to play on. I remember the players actually kind of liking the new field turf because I guess they were comparing it to AstroTurf. But it certainly seems like the players would prefer to go play more on grass. Our next question about Braxton Berrios, a contract proposal. Two years, $4.5 million per year, $3 million guaranteed with incentives up to $6.5 million. I, I, I do it. I don't know if Berrios is going to take that, though. There were rumors this week that Berrios is seeking a contract around $9 million a year. Listen, I have to say, I think I sold Braxton Berrios short. He really carved out a good role for this team on offense and on special teams. Really an excellent year as a return guy, a first-team all-pro kick returner. And as much as anything for a guy like this who's maybe not got the biggest skill set in the league but has some tools to work with, it's, a, it's about finding a role in the system. It's about carving out your area of expertise. And the Jets kind of found it. He was a good backup slot receiver when he was called upon, especially late in the year. Made some good catches to move the chains. But he also kind of played that like running back hybrid role where the Jets would motion him out, either throw him the ball or get him the ball in a jet sweep. And I think that's part of Mike LaFleur's offense. And he kind of took that role over when Elijah Moore got hurt. So Berrios is a useful player. But, I mean, here's the thing. If you're Berrios... This might be like your one chance to really, really cash in because you just had a good year when you're about to hit free agency. So if I'm Braxton Berrios, listen, I appreciate everything the Jets did for me. I appreciate the opportunity, but I'm just taking the biggest payday because there may not be a second payday. You, this, this is your chance to maximize your career earnings. Careers don't last that long in the NFL. So I can't blame him for seeking $9 million. I'd probably do the same thing. And I listen, I like what everything he did this year. Here's the thing for the Jets. I don't think Braxton Berrios is worth that kind of money. I mean, I'd probably put my limit around $5 million because at the end of the day, he's kind of a role player. He is a backup receiver. And I know people may not like this take because I know Berrios is a popular player. But if you're going to pay him like $9 million, that's kind of starter money. And it kind of means that you're not looking to add a big-time receiver because you already have Elijah Moore and you already have Corey Davis and they're not going to the bench. So if you're going to pay Barrios to be a starter and you're going to put him into a starter role, that kind of means that you're trying you're 
limiting yourself at the receiver position. I think you got to look to add another big time receiver to help Zach out. So I think it's maybe just one of those things where it's a decent player. If he was looking for a little less money, it would make a lot of sense. I mean, I think the Jets should definitely try and bring him back, but I'm just not sure there's a match between what the, what it would be would be wise for the team to pay and what Barrios is seeking. Because again, if you're Barrios, you got to make as much money as you can this offseason. This is it's the dream scenario for a player where you have this big year, you make first team All Pro as a returner, you show yourself to be a very productive player when called upon. Now you're about to hit free agency. You're going to get a big payday. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for him. <laughs> That's great for him that he's going to get paid. But I just don't know that he makes financial sense for the Jets at the money he's seeking. I'd probably put my limit somewhere around $5 billion or so where you know, he's a productive role player. He's a good backup. But you know, I don't know that he's a guy the Jets should be paying starter money to. Listen, if he's willing to take 4.5 per year, I do it. No question. No, no questions asked. But... I don't know that he's willing to do that. I think if you're Barrios, it makes all the sense in the world to get out on the open market. Listen, in free agency, in the NFL, teams overpay. And it's good to be a player when you get overpaid. And I'll be very happy for him if he makes that money. We'll see. I'm a little skeptical, a little pessimistic on the Jets' ability to retain him. Now, head here on the Lockdown Jets podcast. We'll continue with our weekly mailbag show. Now, the big game is on Sunday, and Bet Online has you covered not only that day, but through the entire year with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. As football continues its march past the big game and we move into big games for other sports, BetOnline.net remains your best spot for all the scores, podcasts, and news this year. And it's not just football. BetOnline has up to the minute info on pro and college hoops, NHL, boxing, UFC, along with live real time updates of current games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the new amazing offers available for the 2022 season. Bet online, where the game starts. Thanks for making Locked On Jets your first listen or first watch every day as this podcast is now on YouTube. Give this episode a thumbs up if you like what you see. It'll help other Jets fans find Locked On Jets. We continue with our weekly mailbag. Our next question, would you prefer the Jets add a wide receiver, tight end, a right guard to help Zach the most? Well, all of the above, obviously, but this is just my read on things. I think if you ask me what helps a young quarterback the most, and I haven't looked at any numbers, any studies, this is just my personal opinion, I'd like an offensive line. I think the offensive line is the best thing you can give a young quarterback. I think it's even better, perhaps, than the number one receiver because it just makes life easier. It doesn't have to deal with pressure. I think the quarterback position, pressure is the most difficult thing. If you can limit the amount of pressure a quarterback faces, you're going to get a more productive player. I mean, the numbers I always look at, if you ever look at Kevin Cobb's career, and this was a guy the Eagles drafted in the second round, he spent some time with Arizona. He really was not that productive of a player. But the point is, if you actually look at his career production, he was a pretty good quarterback when he was in a clean pocket where he really struggled. And the reason he was not a more successful quarterback was he could not throw under pressure. Now, listen, you have to succeed to some extent under pressure, but Quarterbacks are just different if they're working from a clean pocket. And not only that, but I think an offensive line allows you to build a strong running game. It helps the quarterback when he drops back, but it also gives a strong running game, which also helps the quarterback out. So, you know, a wide receiver only helps you in the passing game. A strong offensive line keeps you in decent downs and distances, just makes the quarterback's life easier. So I want all of the above. I want a tight end. I want a wide receiver. 
But more than anything, I want an offensive line. So I'd choose right guard. And I guess you could argue the tight end also helps in the running game and passing game. But I don't think to the extent. I think offensive line is a more premium spot than tight end. So I'm going with if you if if I can only get one, and I want all of them. But if I can only get one, I think I'm upgrading right guard this offseason. Next question: The Jets had a very good game against the Bengals and some very bad games. The Patriots, among others, in 2021. Is roster or coaching more to blame for this inconsistency? I think the coaching staff got a free pass in 2021 and should shoulder more blame for bad schemes and bad game planning. What say you? I don't know that I would agree necessarily that the coaching staff got off easy, especially for that Patriots game. And they deserved it because that was off a bye. There's never an excuse for playing like that off a bye. The coaching staff has to get some grief for that. But the NFL's a player's league. And listen, I think the reason the Jets won four games more than anything, you can blame the coaches for certain things, but the biggest reason the Jets only won four games is the roster just was not very talented. I mean, look at Zach Taylor. Zach Taylor was a joke two years ago. I questioned Zach Taylor. I I remember saying, I don't know why the Bengals hired this guy. Now he's in the Super Bowl because he's got a better roster. He's got a quarterback. He's got a great receiver. He's got great skill players. So it's more about players it's about coaching to some extent and listen you cannot let them off the hook for that patriots game off the bye but it's more about players it 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 always is and the jets have to get better if the jets get better players you'll see how drastically the coaching staff improves so i'd i'd say unless i'm not trying to diminish the role of coaches but it's always about players and yeah you can say they played well in certain games well the nfl players no matter who you have Players are always good enough to put together one good game. Even like bad players in the NFL are some of the most talented athletes in the world. There's an old saying that the difference between a good NFL player and a bad NFL player is not that great. That's not true in college. And you frequently see guys dominate in college just because they're so much better than the competition. They don't need to use good technique. They don't really need to focus during the week. The NFL, that's not true. You don't use good technique. You don't prepare during the week. You don't respect your opponent on Sunday. You're going to get beaten because even if you're better than them, you're not that much better than them. The difference between a good NFL player and a bad NFL player is also consistency. The bad NFL player can put together one good game. They can't do it consistently, whereas the good NFL players can. So I lean more towards players. I'm not saying the coaching staff can be completely absolved of four wins, but I think it's much more about roster than it is about players, and it frequently is. And You'd be amazed how many times you see a coach who, then Zach Taylor's a perfect example. I mentioned him. You'd be amazed how many times a bad coach suddenly looks a lot better once his roster gets better. Next question. How do you feel about Rob Calabrese? Seems to me that during the games, LaFleur will be in the booth scheming and analyzing how to exploit defenses. Meanwhile, I think Ron Middleton has grown into the emotional leader of the offense down on the sidelines. I think they both fit these roles really well. That's going to leave Calabrese as the guy that's going to be in Wilson's year going over what he saw and advising him between offensive series. Do you agree with my assessment of these coaches' roles, and do you think Calabrese is up to the task? Well, I agree. LaFleur is going to be in the booth analyzing things. He's going to be calling the plays. Middleton, I mean, how can you not love Ron Middleton after that game he coached? If you ever heard him in a press conference, Ron Middleton's awesome. So I love Ron Middleton. Ron Middleton might be my favorite coach on the Chet staff, especially after the way he coached that Jacksonville game. So Rob Calabrese, if you're not familiar with him, he's the quarterback's coach, and he's going to have a bigger role this year. The Jets are kind of streamlining their offensive coaching staff. Matt Cavanaugh is kind of like a senior offensive assistant not coming back, and neither is John Beck. And John Beck is Zach Wilson's personal quarterback's coach. They hired him during the season to work with Zach. So this, I think this all kind of goes back to the beginning of the year because LaFleur wanted to coach from the booth, and 
the Jets coaching staff reportedly wanted him on the field so he could speak directly with Zach during games. And you may remember the first couple of games offensively for the Jets did not go very well. So the LaFleur eventually moved up to the booth. And the theory goes that they hired Zach's personal quarterbacks coach. So that way LaFleur could be on the booth and Zach could have somebody who would give him personal attention during the games and John Beck. But Beck's not coming back. And it's a little complicated because Beck's a private quarterbacks coach. He kind of runs his own business. Zach's one of his clients. So he left the team. And part of it's also that there are very strict rules for how frequently a coach and a player can work in the offseason. If you're employed by the team as a coach, you can only work with them at certain points. So Beck kind of leaves the team now. So now Calabrese is going to have a lot on his plate. And also, like, looking back on it, it kind of feels like this was kind of smart if this is why the Jets did it. It kind of feels like one of the reasons the Jets brought John Beck in during the season was so that he could get an idea of what the Jets coaching staff was looking for, how they're trying to train Zach, the types of things that they want him to improve on. Pretty smart if the Jets did did it for that reason, just to kind of give Beck an overview of what they want. Good stuff from the Jets if that's what they did. But now, after having all these coaches, Calabrese is going to be the guy. And honestly, I think it's difficult to have an opinion on him because, again, this year there were so many coaches for Zach that very difficult to know what Calabrese was responsible for. If you go back through his history, I mean, you have some mostly entry-level jobs on his resume. The only job he had in the NFL before becoming the Jets quarterbacks coach was as a quality control coach in Denver. And a quality control coach, what they do is they're essentially kind of like advanced scouts. The regular coaching staff is focused on the game that's this week. So what the quality control guys do is they typically break down film of the next opponent, the, the opponent two weeks in advance, so that when you prepare your game plan, when you begin your when you begin your game planning, you have an idea of what your opponent's tendencies are. You're not starting from square one. They're kind of looking ahead two to three weeks and breaking down the film on the next opponent, coming up with tendencies, what their core plays are, their base formations. So he doesn't really have a track record in the NFL. You know, we'll see. The Jets seem to think very highly of Rob Calabrese. There's not really a track record there, though. I know this is not a great answer, but it's just a case. There's no, there's no history of him working with quarterbacks. So you know, another guy who's been in the NFL 15, 20 years, you can look at the quarterbacks he's mentored, and you can say, okay, well, this guy's done a good job with this guy. He's done a bad job with this guy. Jets are kind of going on potential here, and that seems to be kind of the way they've built their coaching staff. Lots of young guys who don't have a ton of experience. It's kind of similar to the way Kyle Shanahan built his coaching staff in San Francisco, and they kind of grew together. And through those first couple of years in San Francisco, there was some criticism that the coaching staff was a little, little too young. The team did not have a high level of success, and there were some question marks about it. So you hope Rob Calabrese grows into the role, but as far as how good he is, we don't really know yet. It's very difficult to say. Now, head here on the Lockdown Jets podcast, we'll talk more about the Jets coaches as we finish our weekly mailbag. Now, we hope the coaches on the Jets will grow into the best coaching staff in the NFL, but there's no question what the best protein bar on the market is. That's Built Bar. These may be protein bars, but they don't taste like them. They're absolutely delicious. They're chocolatey. They taste like candy bars. And most bars only contain 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. Compare that to a candy bar, which usually has around 240 calories, 30 grams of sugar, and dozens of net carbs. There's so many delicious flavors, too. You got mint brownie. You got coconut. You got coconut almond. And new this month, white chocolate cookies and cream. And Built is always coming out with new temporary flavors. You got to check them out. 
So go to their website, Built.com, and you can order these delicious bars. You will not regret it. I, like I said, these are protein bars. They don't taste like protein bars. They taste like candy bars. Check them out at Built.com, B-U-I-L-T.com. Jets fans, we're going to get back to our weekly mailbag shortly, but first I want to tell you about an incredible app everyone who buys gas needs to know about, GetUpside. My listeners are earning cash back for every gallon of gas every time they fill up. Just download the free GetUpside app in the App Store or Google Play right now and use promo code TOUCHDOWN for $0.25 cents per gallon or more on your first fill-up cash back. Don't pay full price at the pump anymore. Get cash back using GetUpside. Just download the app for free and use promo code TOUCHDOWN for $0.25 cents per gallon or more on your first tank. Some people who drive a lot are making as much as two or $300 a year in cash back, and there's no catch. The cash back gets added right to your account. You can cash out anytime to a bank account, PayPal, or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free GetUpside app and use promo code TOUCHDOWN to get $0.25 cents per gallon or more cash back on your first tank. That's code TOUCHDOWN using the GetUpside app. This is the Locked On Jets podcast on this Mailbag Wednesday. Our next question, what do you think will impact the decision-making more, the Senior Bowl or the Combine? Well, they both have their place. The Senior Bowl, I think it's a especially productive Senior Bowl this year for the Jets coaching staff because they were able to work directly with these prospects. They got a sense of the, how they perform in drills, which gives you an idea of what their traits are, and the Jets are looking for certain traits at each position. And for some smaller school prospects, we talked about Trevor Penning the other day, it's an opportunity to give them a kind of a barometer because when you've got a small school guy, they're going up against competition that's not that great. So there's always the question, are they dominating because of their talent or are they dominating just because the guys they're up against aren't that good? So that's kind of a good barometer there. And then the combine tells you more about measurables. It helps you to kind of contextualize some things, but ultimately they both have their place. And I think as much as anything, what's important is they get to interview these guys. It's not just about the physical workouts. It's not just about the drills. It's not just about the, it's not just about the athletic testing at the combine. They get to talk to these guys, get to know them, understand their work ethics. Because when you're talking about the draft, it's not only about a player's physical skills. It's also about do they have the work ethic to, to succeed in the NFL. Go back to what I said a little bit earlier. You can have all the talent in the world. In the NFL, if you're going to be successful, you got you got to work. So that that's an issue. If you know, there are any players with the quote-unquote red flags, you can kind of address those in the interviews. So there's, these both have their place, but it's very important because they get to speak with these players. And I remember very early in the history of Locked On Jets, back in 2016, I had the honor of interviewing the legendary offensive coach, offensive line coach Howard Mudd, who very sadly passed away recently. And I remember asking him about the combine. And I asked him what the worst answer he ever got was to a question. And he said, he told me, and this was really funny, I thought, really funny answer. He asked one of the prospects if he ever cheated on his college tests. And the answer he got was, if I'm cheating, I ain't repeating. And Howard Mudd mentioned that that player was immediately taken off the board uh, when he gave that answer. So, you know, they both have their place. I, I do think the combo, uh, not the combo, I do think the senior bowl has a little bit of extra emphasis this year for the Jets, but just because they got that chance to work with these guys one-on-one. But, you know, it could go either way. I think they're both, they're both pretty important. Next question. Zach Taylor and Kyle Shanahan both had losing records in their first two seasons. 
Shanahan's second season went even worse than his first before both made it to the Super Bowl in their third seasons. The same is true with the great Bill Walsh. When assessing Salah and Douglas, how can Jets fans balance patience while also expectations of a big leap next season? That's a great question. And I've actually been reading a book Walsh wrote, or it's, it's, it was his lessons on leadership. It's called the score takes care of itself. And essentially what happened was this author approached Bill Walsh in the 1990s and asked him to put down the lessons he learned about leadership on paper. And he worked with Walsh and then Walsh decided to get back into the NFL. He took the job as the general manager of the 49ers. He returned to the 49ers in the late nineties. So he asked the author, can we put this away for now? And then near the end of his life, they started working on it again and Walsh passed away. And this author went to Walsh's family and they, his family approved the idea of them releasing this book. And they also gave some of Walsh's documents. So it, essentially this book, it was released after Walsh died and it's his lessons on leadership. And he talks about how his first season with the 49ers, they only went two and 14. They were still one of the worst teams in the NFL, but he could see progress there. So it's very difficult to judge it. We always talk about progress, but progress is very difficult to judge. It's not a specific thing. I mean, wins and losses do matter, but they're not the only things that matter. And like, like I said, Walsh felt like he his team was making progress, even when they weren't winning games. He saw he saw different he saw changes in the organization. And I have to say, as he describes those first couple of years in San Francisco, it was amazing to me. It was very striking to me how much overlap there is with the Jets' current situation, where they're kind of viewed as one of the bottom teams in the NFL, and people aren't proud to be there. So it's kind of difficult to. I, I really can't give a direct answer of what it's going to be. Because, you know, you could say a certain win total, but let's say Jets need to win seven games next year. Well, if they start out 7-0 and and lose their last 10 games, you're going to have a very different viewpoint than if the Jets are competitive throughout the season and they're around 500 and maybe they're, they're fighting into the they're in the playoff race till the end and they lose a couple games. Those are different types of 7-10 and 10 seasons. So it's one of those things that's much more art than science. It's just I wish I had an answer to that. It's just something I think we're going to have to judge on its own merits and we'll have to figure out because there's there are a lot of nuance in judging whether a team's really making progress one thing i'll say is they can't win four games again wins and losses may not be the entirety of the judgment but they have to be part of the judgment they're a very important part of the judgment that's all for our show today thank you for listening and thank you for watching this has been the locked on jets podcast part of the locked on podcast network as always, if you like what you hear or see, click the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode. And if you're on YouTube, give this episode a thumbs up. It'll help other Jets fans find the podcast. Hope you have a great Wednesday, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow to talk more Jets.